Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Chris Slowly. For today's episode, we're joined by Sarah Ketterer. Sarah is the CEO and a portfolio manager at Causeway Capital Management, uh, a global equity firm that she founded. Uh, they're headquartered in Los Angeles, but she joined us from Texas, which was pretty uh, apropos given the mistake that she talked about, which was all about how things went wrong for her investing in the energy sector, specifically US oil and gas. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you said, she was there in Texas. She was there on the ground seeing what was happening and it perhaps made it a bit more personal when the mistake actually occurred, which I won't give too much away here. But she did say it was a massive wake up call, which I think is always a good thing for us to hear when you're looking for a mistake. Yeah, she was very frank about that, which was great. You know, often, look, let's cut to the chase. Portfolio managers can be difficult sometimes. Um, they don't like to admit their mistakes. And sometimes when they do, they're not perhaps as open about them as they could be. But she was she was very frank, very open about uh, the scale of, of their error and, and, and what went wrong and, and how basically they got they got pretty badly burned by oil and gas for, for a decent length of time, uh, which was lovely and refreshing um, and good to have Sarah on. Another way, of course, that Sarah is refreshing as well, we should flag, is she's one of the few female CEOs of an asset management company. Uh, and her firm is, uh, I think, majority owned by uh, women and minority uh, or those from a minority background, which, which, which is not something you see that often in, in asset management, right, Chris? No, absolutely. It is. I mean, we seem to be moving more that way, which is a very positive thing. But yeah, she's a bit of a trailblazer in that sense because she's been there, I think it's two decades now, and, and she's seen a lot of growth, a lot of change. And I think that comes through as well because we get a couple of examples of things she's had to deal with, and especially as somebody looking at value or discounted growth, as some people seem to want to call it these days. She's got some good examples of how you can sometimes get that wrong as well. So yeah, there's a lot in here. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, we've probably spoken enough. So without further ado, here is our interview with Sarah Ketterer. Every investor makes mistakes. I, I think if you don't make mistakes you aren't really investing. Investing's all about making lots of mistakes, learning from it, internalizing that, and then not making those mistakes again. There, there are, of course, plenty more to make. But the, you know, I look back, I've had a very, very long career in investing, more than most these days, over 30 years. And there were lots of small mistakes. It's the big ones. The one, those are the ones that are unforgivable from a client perspective. And all of us at Causeway, there we manage about $45 billion for institutional clients and some individuals who are our mutual funds. And we invest alongside our clients and our own fund family and some of our um, our private partnerships so that Everything, whether it be the joy and thrill of great stock selection or or the tough and rough and tumble of of poor stock selection and or market shrinkage, we we're right there. We, we every bump in the road, we feel that with our clients. And the biggest bumps that we've ever had were in one particular sector, and it's one as I look back. I don't know how I would have avoided the mistake, but we won't make it again. And that was in, <laughs> that was in oil and gas. Uh, it, I'm talking to you from our Dallas office where there's still a bit of excitement about the energy sector, even though a lot has changed from where it peaked in 2014. I think one thing that we've, because we, we've done a few of these interviews, obviously, yeah, and I think that's the thing is that actually people don't necessarily they wouldn't have necessarily done anything different because there's often a process 
you know good good investors have a process have a philosophy yeah. there's a reason why they made the decision at the time but, but but they did learn something from it um so you mentioned the oil and gas sector can could, could you be a little more specific was what sort of time period are we talking what what were the uh i don't know what was the what were the positions that, that you had and, and what went yeah. wrong and then we'll come on to what you learned <laughs> So we work as a team. Our fundamental group has uh, we have numerous portfolio managers and analysts supporting them, and and our we we divide our responsibilities in terms of global sectors. And think back to March of 2014 when a hotel room in Midland, Texas, right, maybe not the garden spot of the state, was $400 a night. You know the craziness, just an absolute gold rush for oil. And in the prior four years, crude oil traded above $100 a barrel. It may seem a little odd now, but at the time, we, that's that's what it cost. That's where the supply and demand curves met. And we had a couple of, I've got a couple of colleagues on my team who inherited the energy sector. They were to cover it and they went after it with gusto. And they even let me go to, uh, sent me on a couple of tours and I put on the full on body, the, uh, the jumpsuit, got on those rigs, freezing cold and, uh, and got to understand how a walking rig works and what the whole, the stresses in the system and how hydraulic fracking really works and the, the IT behind it and the use of water, the whole, it was fascinating two days. And that was the absolute zenith for, for, the unconventional drilling industry in the U.S. Our biggest mistake was that it's not just that we extrapolated very high oil prices. We used, a, we call it a commodity deck. So as fundamental analysts, we need to project out what we think if there's a commodity that's important to the company's revenue and earnings, and we have to project out its price. And we worked with what we thought was a very sobering scenario, somewhere around Six fifty-five to sixty dollars a barrel, and did all our calculations on that, and that was well below the current spot. But it wasn't just the price that turned out to be jagged and uh, a wake-up call. It was the company's management and their obsession with taking their cash flow and pouring it back into drilling, and not rewarding shareholders sufficiently. Um, this is even pre-concerns about how environmentally conscious they were. Um, that came a couple of years later, but from 2014 to 2016, that was the that was the first wake up call. This industry maybe was too cash consumptive, and then they made many acquisitions. But shareholders have to get their due, whether it be in in the prospect for tremendous upside potential through um, recovery in their business and or earnings, or they have to start getting cash today through very very uh, generous dividend payout. And we were getting neither there. And our big mistake as a team and our energy specialists as well, just we just didn't, it, it's almost as if we were in denial. And I think this is just one of those behavioral problems of portfolio management. But it was, um, was it just exacerbated by the environment we were in where we, we just never we could never have anticipated crude oil going negative as it did in early 2020. So how how big a mistake was this? How big a position was was oil and gas in? Uh, I, I mean, for example, so I look at your like the International Value yeah, Fund. I don't yeah. know if we're talking about that or that's just yeah. the flagship. I, I think how how big a bet was was, was that in this? And, and at what point did you start to realize? So you mentioned 2014 being the zenith. Was that when you were 
legging in 2016 when did you start yeah. unwinding sort of yeah yeah so i think about 2014 is the just the zenith for the industry for the whole um, a conventional drilling industry in the u.s just so much excitement and endless amount of upside potential as investors were buying these stocks with with really unbridled enthusiasm it's again it's hard to understand that today after the after the brutality that the in industry has gone through, but the U.S. was at the, literally we were becoming unchained from the dependency on the Middle East. The U.S. had its own uh, huge engine of growth and uh, self-sufficiency in crude oil through a number of different basins in the uh, in this country. So, so that was what was so exciting about it all. And we wanted our clients to take advantage of what we thought were very low valuations. But what we learned was that some of these companies had very unsustainable earnings. The, the, the crude oil price turned out to be much more volatile than we anticipated. But worst of all, and to your point, these were a couple of percentage points, several of them each in the portfolio. So we had an active weight, a weight in excess of the benchmark weight, which is the low cost alternative for clients of somewhere around four to 500 basis points, which is a lot. That's that's four or five percentage points more than the benchmark. So we were, I'd say, uh, overly confident in an area that had very, very volatile earnings. And we learned this um, all very much too late by late 2019. So we started buying these stocks in, in greater quantities in 2015. And it was several years of watching them, several of them make untoward acquisitions, you know, overpay or neglect to reward shareholders. And then they can, the managements tend to, they were very bullish and I think somewhat misleading as well. Have you seen that since? Have you seen that in other sectors? And, and how much have you taken that on board across everything that you do? Because I know this is a very sector specific story, but you yeah. also, you learned those yeah. lessons when dealing with different parts of the investment yeah. universe. Well, we, we're much more cautious today and going forward about businesses that, that rely on commodity prices. Look at, look at um, natural gas, you know, measured Henry Hub. It's, it became such a commodity, natural gas. There was so much drilling and, and the gas was sort of discarded or flared off. And there was such a surfeit of it. The oil and gas companies didn't even know what to do with it. And just recently has the price risen to where it's become very profitable and attractive. But building a, an investment case fundamentally around commodity-driven business is very risky thing to do. And we were overly confident in the commodity and our understanding of its trajectory, which we got wrong, because it's not just supply and demand curves, you've got macroeconomic, all kind of exogenous influences that can, that can have an impact on that. So that was the biggest takeaway right there is those are, those are stocks where the, the discount rate should be much higher than what we were using. We talked just before we started, and listeners sometimes we, we talk to our guests before we hit record. We we were joking about we were joking about Volkswagen, and, and you used the word trauma, which seemed like quite yeah. an extreme word. And I, I was just wondering, so I mean, that's also a business which, to some degree, is is related to to what we've just talked about, or or is it or is it not? And, and, and I mean, has has it affected positions beyond 
just the sort of pure yeah, oil and gas sex, sectors in your portfolios as well, this kind of lesson? I, I think of Volkswagen is uh, different. The traumatic part of it was that in September of 2015, the company admitted they were engaging in fraud. Like that's, uh, I don't, it's, I, my colleagues and I hold ourselves accountable for misjudging a commodity-based industry like oil and gas, or perhaps misunderstanding management's intentions, you know, the governance of the business. But, but when a company is secretly cheating its customers and its shareholders, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, if we can't see that and nobody else can, then we have to scramble to do something about it. And we had been accumulating VW shares in early 2015, and then by September, this announcement arrived. The stock halved over two days, literally went down 50%. That's um, that's traumatic. And yet, what we're supposed to do and what we did as, as fundamental managers was deploy every resource we have. We went to outside legal counsel to, um, to get an, a, a good bracketed idea of what the penalties would be financially for the company. We talked to ex-environmental protection agency employees to get some sense of, of how severe this would be. We talked to marketing experts. We went back and studied the General Motors sticky ignition switches and the, and the accelerator pedal problem with Toyota and on various significant automotive disasters so that we could, ex we could, we could forecast what we thought the problems or the, the cost would be for Volkswagen. We arrived at somewhere around 25 billion euros, which is, that's a big number. You know, that sort of rivals BP and Macondo. And we were only sh short when it all said and done by about 5 billion euros. But the company had all that on its balance sheet as net cash. And so I know, I don't think of VW as, at short term, it was a disaster for clients. We doubled our position as the stock fell. We, we literally bought into that because of the information we got over the next 48 hours. And um, But it, did, it took a long time to pay off. It took until, and this is why this is sort of interesting, the first three months of this year, 2021, the stock finally got to about 240 euros a share. So over our, our client's holding period on average, they made about 15% annually but they got almost all the return in the final three months of the holding. That's um that's rough go for clients. You know, they don't have that kind of patience that, you know, if they couldn't see the share price progression, they might be able to tough it out. But for that's, you know, that type of value investing is for those who have a very long time frame. So, so the trauma was really in the fraud. Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge place to put the trauma as well. It's a horrible place to have it. But <laughs> in terms of the way that you function, as you said there, as a value investor, from what I understand is you, is you look for companies with operational difficulties. I mean, this is an, an extreme case at best, I think, of an operational difficulty. How do you walk that line between finding those that are going to recover and do well and avoiding ones that are going to be blow-ups, for want of a better word? Well, the... the distinguishing between operational recovery or operational gearing, think of it that way, companies that as their revenues improve, their profitability will improve significantly because they have so much in the way of gearing into that recovery and financial gearing, which is completely different. We don't want uh, financially, I'd say, any company that doesn't have 
sufficient financial strength to go through that operational restructuring is a reject. We can't can't endure that. The clients can't take it. And that was part of what happened in oil and gas is the commodity price fell and these companies made these aggressive acquisitions. What had been a financially strong situation deteriorated. And of course, that adds more in the way, you know, all of a sudden you're talking about a lever, more levered balance sheet and then the beta goes up and then there's all this additional volatility associated with holding the stock. It becomes this vicious cycle. So abundant financial strength. And that was one of the reasons why we were attracted initially to the Volkswagen position because of the company's extraordinary balance sheet. Uh, There are some companies that never return the cash and that sit on cash for generations, and those are more like value traps. But but a a very high fixed cost business, uh, capital intensive, like a Volkswagen, at least as it was, they're redefining themselves in the future. In that case, you need a lot of cash because there can be significant bumps in the road. Value investors generally are more interesting to listen, uh, more interesting to interview, right? Because because it's been a yeah. difficult time and because the whole style, right? So we've interviewed quite a few. And I always want to kind of joke with them at the beginning and go sort of, what's your biggest mistake and why has it been value investing for the last decade, right? And just just, just a, a, yeah. a, a fun way to start, which is obviously really unfair. But I, I'm just interested to know, you know, have there been times, because it has been so frustrating, I think, for a lot of people. And, and it's not, you know, and as you say, there's lots of reasons for it beyond... Um, beyond your control, effectively. Just interesting, you know, how, how have you sort of not handled it? Obviously, you, you keep you keep on keeping on, but are there times when it you, well, you just get really dispirited? You're like, oh, you sort of, you know you're probably right, but uh, <laughs> but it's just not being reflected yet. And, and, and obviously, yeah, some of some of what happened last year and into this year has, has maybe changed that and, and changed how you fe- felt. But yeah. I guess maybe yeah. even this time a year ago, that hadn't happened. Okay. I, I'll get back to this idea of, of liquidity. Liquidity in my view, after having done this for so long now, is really important to not only how investors perceive equities and how they value them and how they're willing to be very patient to wait for cash flow that won't are, is, is promised far out into the future. You just don't see it today. And the successes of a number of large cap growth stocks kind of embolden investors to take risks they wouldn't otherwise. And then having no, literally the cost of capital is so important. It's the keystone to doing valuation work. And when interest rates fall to such low levels, investors are less worried about risk. So when they're, when risk tolerance is incredibly high as investors are willing to take lots of risk, High yield bond spreads narrow to almost you know, to historically low levels. That is a tremendous headwind for those of us who are very parsimonious and care about what we pay. That entry price being so important. But there, I, I think I and I'm the vast majority of my colleagues have come to the realization that we can't count on rate rises to assuage client concerns. Well, to the point one of you made earlier is operational restructuring is forever. It's there always. There's n- there, If they were all perfect companies, this would be a very strange world we'd live in. But there are so many companies that have, like Volkswagen, for example, they've got to climb out of some hole they dug for themselves. They have some reason why their earnings are well below where they need to be. And the management has the capability of doing the kind of work, the uh, the cost cutting, the, the efficiency gains, the implementation of a better IT system. I mean, there's a myriad possibilities. That's 
forever for the value investor. We'll always be able to find those. I think we can hang our hat on that indefinitely. So I'm kind of encouraged, you know, whether rates go lower or they don't, I don't even care anymore. Like we don't need to own bank stocks. We're not, and it's not like as a value investor, you have to own certain sectors in order to qualify. That's, that's index construction. For us, for active value managers, we need to go where the market perhaps has misunderstood because we do a ton of homework where they've misunderstood the underlying company and where we're confident the management can could improve the trajectory of earnings and cash flow. One place I heard that you were very uh, skeptical, should I say, about indexes is China. Even though you're wildly bullish, you don't want to buy an index product. But I also heard, bringing it back to mistakes, <laughs> one thing that you wish you could have done was learn Mandarin sooner. Is that right? Have I heard that right? Or am I conflating uh, everything into one point? Well, let's start with the, let's start with investing in China. That. We've just started to invest directly in the Chinese market. Um, we went in there just as the wave of regulation rose to a crescendo. And now we have you know, the whole, oh yeah, the, the property market under so yeah. much stress with the potential bankruptcy, Evergrande, the big, big property developer. Oh yeah, it's, and uh, timing is so important on any type of launch, but we're learning a lot. And this is just partner capital and we'll take our lumps. But, but that learning, we're redeploy into what we can offer to clients. You don't learn in a bull market. You only learn when there's adversity. I mean, anybody can make money in a bull market. So bring it on. I just, we just need the regulatory environment to become more transparent and more consistent. And I think that will then assuage investor concerns as opposed to capricious and completely unpredictable that's no good that 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 sends you know cost of capital way up just to um, do do you speak mandarin now do you have some chinese no um no i i can't imagine the time of the amount of time it would take i have learned how to order in restaurants and basic salutations and and kind of silly things you learn as a student but i've done all this in my free time of which there's been a lot less lately because uh, I also want to learn some programming languages, just enough so I'm keeping up with the data analytics crowd here. So we have five people working in our Shanghai office, and that office just opened up last year. So we've we've made a big move to staff it with a very uh, trustworthy partner of Causeway and a number of analysts who we think are very talented. But it'll take a while for us to get to the point where we get the full return on that investment, as in information flows back to Los Angeles, where we have most of our research, and and it gets incorporated into all of our portfolios. This is a uh, this is not really well. This is the news journalist in me taking over. Um, setting up that office is that for research for the existing business, you know, I, I, you know, the mutual funds and institutional yeah. investors that you have in the U.S., or or is it to try and win? you know, to launch product and, and, and win investors in China or it's, is the, it both? it's the former. We need we needed an ear to the ground in what I believe will be the single the second most important stock market in the world over the next several decades. Uh, after the UK, yeah. After the, exactly. <laughs> I've always loved the UK. That's a whole nother conversation. Uh, the the winner in, in corporate governance outside the US but China has gigantic 3,000 stocks listed domestically on average. I, you know, how many are really investable and so on is, is somewhat of a debate. But it's the new frontier for value management in that much is undiscovered or misunderstood or time investment timeframes are so short that investors looking out beyond the next 
couple of years can do very well. But it's not without its challenges. Well, I was going to say, I mean, with that, going into there, a few people have tried to go in lately. We saw George Soros attack BlackRock for trying to get in there and put some capital there. Are you looking at other people's mistakes, perhaps, into how you might enter that market? Yeah. Well, again, we're just investing in partner capital and we're keeping this in a private partnership. We're not we're not inviting in clients. We have it's a learning curve. And that's how Causeway works. We we start with a concept on what we want to offer, where we see client demand, and then we create a, a strategy and then a paper portfolio, which is not real money, until we are convinced operationally and from a portfolio management perspective that we can do this. And then we move on to partner capital. And then once we have reached a point where we are confident that we can look our clients in the eye and say this this works then we then we offer it so that just means we launch very few new strategies and whether or not we ever have chinese clients i mean it could be beyond my time frame at present our number one goal is to bring information into all our other portfolios because what's happening in china is at the forefront of for example we have hard pressed to find a multinational company that doesn't have exposure direct or indirect and from a geopolitical perspective, so important for the U.S. as an adversary to understand next moves in China. And then the I mean, just thinking about systematic risk from the financial system, even if it's a closed capital account, there's still ramifications elsewhere. And I'm just mentioning a few. So the intertwined nature of China and the rest of the world, not to be uh, underestimated and and very hard to research that market effectively without being there. Fantastic. Well, that was our interview with Sarah Ketterer. And I mean, Chris, loads in there. I mean, obviously kicked off hearing about the difficulties they faced uh, investing in the energy sector and what they learned eventually there. Obviously took them quite a long time to sort of figure that out. And then I thought, very interestingly, moved on to VW and how you know, another big challenge, but they took a very different approach there. Yeah, absolutely, because they, they seem to learn lessons, which you would always hope, especially in uh, something as big as what happened with oil. But they learned some lessons when VW came up and they really got stuck into it, wanted to understand it. And they didn't move out of it straight away. They actually decided to really engage with them, see what was happening and then make their move. But as time showed, that was another challenge they had to overcome. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I thought... Um... I think that I can't remember if she said this when she was speaking about China or about VW, but she sort of said, you don't learn, you don't learn anything in a bull market, you learn in adversity. So, you know, uh, between oil, between VW, uh, between China, sort of, I think it's a really good point, isn't it? You know, yeah, when, lots of time to any, anyone, can, anyone can make money in a bull market, right? Yeah. Um, although mm, some value investors, you know, didn't, but... <laughs> But yeah, she was great. And I think, um, I mean, especially she's talking about China and the challenges, which mentioned of a grand day and the, the bankruptcy. And I know by the time this comes out, that would have moved on even further. But it shows that some of these things are still being learned and there's still challenges, even in areas that people think are exciting and successful. I wonder as well, you know, how many other asset managers are doing this? You know, how many people are off opening offices in, in China at the moment? You know, you, you brought it up on on. on in the interview, you know, people like Soros are criticizing it. There's lots of flack. But actually, you know, and obviously people like BlackRock, it hits the headlines. But I wonder, are all these smaller firms all office, opening offices there, whether it be it for research at the moment or be it to try and win clients there in the future? You know, I, I thought my feeling was her point was basically you can't afford not to be there regardless of how high the risks can be. I was going to make a choosy point about you can't afford not to listen to this podcast as well. But I think that is really stretching things. 
No, I think that's, if anything, that's what everyone's saying as well. People are saying, yeah, things, China, can't afford not to be in China, can't afford not to be listening to mistakes are made. I th- and I think that's a brilliant note to end on, listener. And if you've listened this far, you're in the money. Um, so on that note, it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And it's goodbye from me, Chris Lowley.